If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we await for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Church family, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you, no doubt, distracted, weary, burdened. Lord, we've come this morning as your people with many needs, and only through you, through your word, can meet them all. Lord, we ask that you would help our eyes to refocus on Jesus this morning, and may our lives live in light of what Christ has done. Father, we pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. I recently came across the story of a man named Tokishi Ishii. He was known as being one of the worst criminals in all of Tokyo. Throughout his life, he had been in and out of prison over 20 times and on occasion would even attack prison guards. And while in prison, they would offer, often torture him with the hope that he would change his behavior. But not only did his behavior remain the same, they said he never expressed any remorse for the evil things that he had done. In 1918, he received the death sentence by hanging after being found guilty of murder. However, before his death, he was sent a New Testament Bible by two Christian missionaries, and he began to read it. Ichi started reading the Gospels, and as he read about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Lord began to do a supernatural work in his heart. He was struck in particular from these words from our Savior in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus hanging from the cross says, Father, forgive them because they know not what they are doing. He would later go on to write about what happened when he came across this verse, and this is what he said. He said, I stopped. I was stabbed to the heart as if by a five-inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I do not know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakably grateful heart, 
I believed. After his conversion, Ishii would go on to write that he viewed his death sentence as the fair and impartial judgment of God. Someone asked him if he felt sorrowful over having to await his own execution, and this is how he responded. He said, locked up in a prison cell, six feet by nine in size, I am infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning when I did not know God. The life of this man forces us to ask the question, what happened? This well-known criminal was hardened to his sin, unresponsive to attempts at moral reform, and was heading to his death. His circumstances were not going to change. There is only one answer, and that is the grace of God. The unmerited favor of God to open his eyes to see and behold the beauty of Christ, the beauty of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. It was by grace that this man was saved through faith. And it was by grace that this man was radically transformed. Consider the pride that would have characterized his life. He was good at elevating himself over others, taking what he wanted and making people pay if they stood in his path. Consider the sinful anger that would have existed in his heart that would lead him to commit murder. Now consider, by God's grace, the newly present humility to accept the consequences of his sin, to know his need for a savior, and to now see Jesus as more precious than any temporary thrill that his previous life brought. Let me ask you, is your gospel that big? Is your gospel that big? To save even the worst of criminals? As Christians, the grace of God should make us more optimists than skeptics. Because we know that if God can save sinners like us, then there isn't a place too dark that the light of the gospel is unable to shine into. You see, the grace of God that has the power to save and the power to enable to live differently is exactly what Paul wanted to remind Titus and his readers of in our passage. If you remember leading up to this point, Paul has already instructed Titus to appoint elders, to refute false teachers, and to teach how Christians are to conduct themselves. As Titus looked around at the culture of Crete and as he looked at the disorder that was presently in the church, it would have been perhaps tempting to become overwhelmed and discouraged when considering the difficult task that was before him. Likewise, Christians, when hearing the expectations of how they are to conduct themselves to adorn the gospel that they profess, would have been perhaps tempted to become overwhelmed and discouraged. And left to themselves, they would in fact have reason to be overwhelmed and discouraged. Left to ourselves, we would have reason to become overwhelmed and discouraged. However, Paul wants to communicate to Titus and to his readers that they are not left to themselves. We are not left to ourselves. 
The commands of God were not intended to be carried out in the strength of the flesh, but in light of and in the power of God's grace. This is my purpose in preaching this passage, that by being reminded of the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus, we would be compelled to pursue godliness. Right belief always affects behavior. And in the Lord's kindness, I want us to see three effects of the grace of God from our passage. Three effects of the grace of God from our passage. If you're taking notes, this is essentially my outline. First, the grace of God saves. That's verse 11. The grace of God saves. Second, the grace of God trains. That's verses 12 through 13. The grace of God trains. And third, the grace of God creates. The grace of God creates. That's verses 14 through 15. So first, the grace of God saves. Look down at verse 11. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And he uses the word for to connect the previous exhortations found in verses 1 through 10. You see, throughout the letters of Paul, one thing he makes consistent in his writings is to always ground how we must live in light of what Christ has done. When he writes to Titus about what he must do and to the Christian readers about how they are to live, he wants to make clear that this is not something that can be done in their own strength. Paul is saying, in light of everything you must remember to do, remember, be encouraged, be strengthened. Why? For the grace of God has appeared. And what is this grace that has appeared? This grace that Paul is referring to is the person and work of Jesus. The word he uses for appeared in the Greek is where we get our word for epiphany. This grace appeared to us when the eternal Son of God took on flesh and was born in a manger. And what happened in the appearing of the grace of God? How was this appearing already predicted or foretold? John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Matthew 1.23 says, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. The appearing of God's grace has come to shine a light in the midst of our dark and dying world. This grace has come to show us that our God wants to be near to his people. This grace has come not to leave us in our sins, but to rescue us from them. This was the grace that Paul says has appeared. It had the purpose of bringing salvation. The salvation of sinners was the mission of Jesus in the incarnation. Being fully God and fully man, Jesus lived a perfect life, the life that you and I could never live. He died a sacrificial death, the death that we deserve to die, and he was resurrected. And who did he do this for? Paul says it was for all people. Meaning, the saving work of Jesus is for the young, the old, male, 
female, every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. The saving work of Christ is without distinction for anyone who would turn away from their sins and to trust in Jesus. And as Paul is writing, I just can't help but to think he was doing so while remembering his own conversion. If you remember prior to his conversion, he was known for arresting Christians and even gave consent to the murder of Stephen. And this is how Paul would describe himself prior to his salvation. He said, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and arrogant man. And if you're here, this, if you're a Christian this morning, when you look back at your former life, would you have a similar list? Maybe it looks a little bit different. But I think as time goes on, and the longer we move away from our conversion, we tend to become forgetful of our own previous list, don't we? We forget who we were apart from Christ and become less and less amazed by our salvation. Throughout the letters of Paul, one thing that is clear is that he never developed amnesia when it came to the grace of God in his life. It was clear that he fully understood that his salvation was the unmerited favor of God. So what happened to this blaspheming, church-persecuting, arrogant man? Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.14, on the Damascus road, on his way to persecute Christians, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. His sin was met with the grace of God, and there was no competition. Brothers and sisters, this is why we sing God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. No matter where you are spiritually this morning, your sin is no match for the grace of God. This is why Paul, after explaining his conversion in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, he breaks out into this praise over what the Lord had done in his life. And this is what he says. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. John Calvin, commenting on the response of Paul to his conversion, says this. By his example, he reminds us all that we ought to never think of the grace manifested in God's calling without being carried to lofty admiration. Eternal, invisible, only wise, this sublime praise of the grace which God had bestowed on him, get this, swallows up the remembrance of his former life. Oh, how great and deep is the glory of God. Has the grace of God swallowed up the remembrance of your former life? What is the hope of Titus in fulfilling his ministry? What is the hope of the original audience in their pursuit of godliness? What is our hope as pastors? What is your hope as church members? Our hope as pastors is not that we can twist your arm into obedience. Your hope is not in personal resolve to be better tomorrow. Our greatest hope is the finished work of Christ. 
The grace of God in the person and work of Jesus is sufficient to accomplish what we cannot. So we proclaim and we instruct with what accords with sound doctrine while trusting that the grace of God will do the saving and changing work. We pursue godliness in the Christian life while trusting it is the grace of God and not our efforts that saves us. In our flesh, we all have this sinful impulse to want to be in absolute control over every part of our lives, and that includes our salvation. So like every other religion, we work really hard and begin to think that our performance is the reason why God will accept us. And you see, the evil one loves this because when we are doing well, he can tempt us towards self-sufficiency. And when we fall short, he can tempt us to despair. So then what is the remedy? What is the remedy? It's to remind ourselves that the grace of God has appeared. In moments of being tempted towards self-sufficiency, we look to the cross. In moments of being tempted to despair, we look to the cross. Fellow pastors and future pastors in the room, when we become overwhelmed or even discouraged by the lack of change we want to see or the sin in others, we look to the cross. I'm sure Titus could have looked around and become angry by the rampant wickedness that he saw. We can look around our culture and be angry at much, can't we? But as James 1.20 says, human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So then what will accomplish the, the righteousness that we want to see? It's heralding the good news that the grace of God has appeared. What will turn this world upside down is not merely sharing our personal disgust, but sharing our marvelous Savior who came to rescue even the worst of sinners. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God saves. But not only does the grace of God save, the grace of God is what trains us for godliness. This leads to the second effect of the grace of God. Look down at verses 12 and 13, the grace of God trains. Paul says not only does the grace of God bring salvation, but it's currently in the present instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is saying the grace of God trains us to say no to the wrong things, yes to the right things, and where to fix our eyes. If you're a Christian, meaning one who has turned away from your sins and has trusted in Jesus, you have been saved by grace through faith. This same grace that was sufficient to save you, it will be the same grace that is sufficient to sanctify you. When we become Christians, the ongoing process of the work of the Holy Spirit begins to make us more and more like, look more and more like Jesus, the Jesus we profess. So then we must ask, what does this process actually look like? What does the grace of God that saves us train us to do? Paul says to deny godlessness 
and worldly lusts. As we look back to the appearing of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ to save us, we are to first in the present to deny godlessness. Meaning we are to renounce any outward behavior that would bring dishonor to God, any outward behavior that would bring reproach on the name of Christ. The concern of Paul is not merely how do you conduct yourself during gathered worship one day a week, but how do you conduct yourself every day that the Lord has graciously given you? And and why is this the concern of Paul? Because as Christians, we aren't called to live our lives in isolation from the world, but to bring glory to God with how we live in the world, both individually and together. You see, the aim of Paul in writing is that these believers would live in such a way that the gospel that they profess would be proclaimed with both their lips, yes, but also their lives. For some, maybe a good diagnostic question for those who are in this position, would be to ask yourself, if, if my co-workers found out that I was a Christian, would they be surprised? In Christ, we are to deny godlessness. However, Paul takes it one step further and tells us that not only to be a Christian means to deny godless outward behavior, but as we look back to the appearing of God's grace in Jesus Christ to save us, We are to second in the present to deny worldly lusts. One thing that we must realize is that the battle to deny godlessness in this fallen world is first a battle that is fought in the heart. It's fought in the heart. And most of us probably don't wake up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to live godless today. Right? None of us are probably saying that. Our godless actions are the result and flow from the daily unchecked thoughts and desires of our hearts. This is why James 1.14 through 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. By the grace of God, we as Christians are not only concerned with the sins that others can see, but also the sins that only God can see. He knows every impure thought and every evil motive. And because we love him and want to honor him, we deny the worldly lusts of our hearts. You see, Christianity is not a look how great I am religion, but a look how great Jesus is way of life. And because that is the motivation, it really makes no difference whether in public or in private. We want to live in such a way that shines a spotlight on the true hero of our story. You see, unlike the false teachers who were living for their own sinful desires, we must deny them for the sake of the gospel. The grace of God is what trains us to say no to the wrong things but the grace of God also trains us to say yes to the right things. Paul says the grace of God trains us to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. He is saying in every way we are to live self-controlled lives while reflecting the character of God. 
Paul is telling Titus and the Christians who would read this letter to conduct themselves completely opposite of the false teachers previously mentioned. We are to no longer live with the primary purpose of pleasing ourselves, but for the primary purpose of pleasing God. In Christ, my thinking is no longer, how can I fulfill all of my desires? But how can I now live in the way God desires? In Christ, my thinking is no longer, how can I exalt myself? But rather, how can I now lay down my life for the good of others? In reading the letter of Titus and hearing the expectations of how we must adorn the doctrine that we profess, you might be thinking, this sounds impossible. How can we consistently live this way? So some time ago, I was having a private conversation with one of my daughters who had managed to get herself into trouble. This usually never happens in our home, just kidding. I went on talking firmly and directly with her about the expectations to honor her father and mother. I went on talking about the consequences of her sin and the punishment that would follow. And I got to the end of this conversation thinking I had done a pretty fine job in instructing our child. Then in a very humble and gracious, honest moment, she said, Dad, I feel like everything you just said is motivated by fearing you and mom. None of what you said to me has anything to do while motivated by the glory of God. And my response came without an ounce of humility. I said, well, of course, the glory of God Then I left the room, and while shutting the door, I thought to myself, she's been trained well, a little too well. Now, I did eventually go back into the room and affirm what she had communicated, right? Like, I accepted defeat in my home with four girls. Accepting defeat is a regular pattern of my life. But the good news for us is that Paul does not fail in giving us the proper motivation for how we must live. He is not unaware of what we need in order to live faithfully in this present age. He not only reminds us of the appearing of God's grace to us in the past, but he also reminds us of the appearing of the glory of God in the future. Recalling the appearing of grace in the past is actually what trains us to fix our eyes on the future. In verse 13, Paul says that we are to live Godly lives in the present, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, in order for us to live distinct lives in this present age, we must not only look back to the grace of God that saved us, but we must also look forward to the glory that awaits us. Charles Spurgeon said, in typical Charles Spurgeon-like fashion, He said, there ought to be a holy light about you, O believer in Jesus. For there is the appearing of grace behind you and the appearing of glory before you. Two manifestations of God shine upon you like a wall of fire. The Lord's appearing around about you. There ought to be a special glory of holiness in your midst. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus is coming back for us, we live in this life like there is a better one to come. We fix our eyes on the second appearing because looking to him is what keeps us faithfully and patiently waiting for heaven. Can you think with me for a moment of what his second appearing will mean? His return means for us no more pain, no more sickness, and no more death. His return for us means no more fighting, no more mixed motives, no more slander, and no more lust. His return for us means that there is an expiration date to all of our suffering. And as good as that sounds, there is even something better that his return will bring. His return will bring for us, it will bring us face to face with himself. And we will realize in that moment, every time we said no to sin and lived faithfully to him, it was totally worth it. He is the eternal treasure that is worth giving up every temporary sinful pleasure in this life. He is worth it. Don't ever stop looking back at the grace of God that has saved you. Don't ever stop looking back to the cross. But keep looking Keep looking to his certain return that the cross has secured. We live in light of the past appearing of grace and we live in light of the future appearing of glory and it will bring us home. He's going to bring us home, brothers and sisters. As I have gotten older, I have begun to realize just how much more I need to remind myself that Jesus is coming back. Maybe you've realized this as well. If you're like me, every day you just grow a little bit more tired of your own sin and weary from living in a fallen world. I want you to be encouraged from Galatians 6.9. It says, let us not get tired of doing good. Why? For we will reap at the present time if we do not give up. He's coming back for us. Do not give up. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God trains us, but the grace of God also creates. Look down at verse 14. He says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Before our conversion, the scriptures say that we were once children of wrath and enslaved to our sin. We were once spiritually dead and living in willful rebellion against God. And what's worse is that we had no way to free ourselves from the spiritual prison we were in. And there was no amount of work that could sort of tip the scales back in our favor. And praise God that while we weren't ever good enough to redeem ourselves, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. The word he uses for redeem literally means to free someone once enslaved on the basis of a ransom payment. Jesus Christ has given himself for us 
at the cross to both deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin. And this is a reminder from Paul to Titus as he looks around at the wickedness that has crept into the church and the wickedness that exists outside of the church that we have a redeemer. This is a reminder to the Christians reading this letter as they consider their own sin that they have a redeemer. This is a reminder for us as we consider our sin that we have a redeemer. We have a redeemer to preach to ourselves and to proclaim to every single person without distinction. Now notice Paul doesn't say Jesus gave himself to redeem certain types of people or his redeeming work is limited to some lawless deeds. He didn't say Jesus came to redeem people who were kind of sinners, just not the really bad ones. He didn't say that Jesus came to redeem us from some sins, just not the really big ones. What did Jesus come to redeem us from? Paul says, all lawlessness, all lawlessness. I think most of us in this room would probably affirm this, but some of us function as if it weren't true. Some of us functionally deny this truth with our heart posture towards lost people, and some of us functionally deny this truth when we see our own sin or the sin of others. So let me ask you, do you really believe, do you really believe that Jesus can redeem us from all lawlessness? Do you believe that? If yes, then we have good news to share with others, don't we? If yes, then we should have an extra measure of grace towards fellow sinners, shouldn't we? If yes, then we should have great hope for even the darkest moments of our lives. So recently for family worship, we finished the book called The Little Pilgrim's Journey. This book is based off of the well-known book, The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. This book is written as an allegory to tell the story of the Christian life from the beginning to end. The main character is a little boy named Christian who has fled the city of destruction. And on the journey, he wanted to find out how he could have his burden removed from his back and how he could make it to the celestial city. The burden, of course, represented his sin, and the celestial city represented heaven. And in just the first few chapters, we see that he is mocked, he is abandoned, and led astray. His journey had just begun, and he had already made decisions that resulted in him being stuck in the mud and surrounded by fire. And after realizing that there were no shortcuts or many paths to the celestial city, a man named Evangelist comes and shows him where to go to get back onto the right path. And he comes to the narrow gate. And I just want to read to you a little portion of this next scene. And I just want you to think about your own life. The story says, coming to the narrow gate, Christian knocked and waited, but he heard nothing. He was afraid and worried. The king may not let me in because I have strayed from the path and I am so filthy and my clothes are so ragged. Christian knocked again. He called out, are you willing to let this poor pilgrim in? At last, goodwill opened the door. I am willing with all of my heart. 
that night we read this story, or that, excuse me, that chapter, and I told uh, my girls one of the reasons that people don't come to Jesus is because they think they're too dirty. Like Christian, we aren't sure if we turn away from our sin that Jesus will actually welcome us. Look, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to encourage you to turn away from your sins and to trust in Jesus. No matter where you come from or what you have done, you are not too dirty for Jesus. And if you're a Christian, the message is the same. You are not too dirty for Jesus. Why? Because he delights in welcoming poor little pilgrims who have made decisions that have left their life in a mess. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The beauty of the gospel is not only found in being redeemed from all of our lawless deeds, the beauty of the gospel is also found in that it reaches the heart. It's able to cleanse us from the inside. We can come to Jesus and have the defiling effects of sin washed away in the blood of our Savior. And it's only through faith in Jesus that we get the filthy clothes of our sin exchanged for the perfect robes of his righteousness. According to Paul, this was the purpose of our redemption. Not only to redeem us from all unlawlessness, but to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. The aim of God's grace in saving undeserving sinners was to create and set apart a people for himself who live not for themselves, but for him. Notice he didn't do this merely for isolated individuals. It says for a people. The redeeming work of Christ purchased a people to be his very own possession. This is why we must have a high view of the local church. Jesus purchased the church by his own blood, and he knew just how flawed and messy the church would be. Knowing everything about us, he still wanted us and gave himself for us so that we would be his very own. And if Jesus gave himself for the church, how much do you think he loves her? With all of the warts and spots that come with even the healthiest of churches, we should love the church like Jesus does. He has made us his possession to live together in such a way that we would make the gospel visible in the way that we live together. Yes, we are going to sin against each other. We are going to hurt each other often. But we display the power of of the gospel and his redeeming work to the world around us when we choose to lean in and to display sacrificial love towards one another. This is the kind of people that the grace of God creates, a gospel-loving people owned by God and zealous to reflect his character both individually and together. In verse 15, Paul tells us to, Paul tells Titus, he says, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So what is the motivation for Titus to, to be faithful as he teaches? What is the motivation of living a faithful Christian life? 
the grace of God to undeserving sinners. Titus can teach hard things because the grace of God saves. Titus can encourage and rebuke because the grace of God is what trains. Titus can rest in being faithful because it is the grace of God, not our craftiness that creates. The motivation of Titus is the same motivation for every reader of this letter. May we as a church look back often on the grace of God that has appeared to save us. And may we as a church often look forward to the appearing of glory in the future so that we would zealously live to please God. Church family, the grace of God saves, the grace of God trains, and the grace of God creates. May we rest in his grace together and live for the glory of God. Because of what Christ has done in appearing in the past, we can be assured, brothers and sisters, that he's coming again for us. Would you pray with me? Father, you're, we could spend every Sunday talking about your grace, how marvelous it is, and we've only scratched the surface. Oh God, may your grace lead us to trust you more, and may your grace lead us to live faithful lives that we might shine a light to our dark and dying world together. Father, thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.